Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Jeffrey Miller. He's an evolutionary psychologist, associate professor of psychology at the University of New Mexico, and an author. Jeffrey has been writing about sexual selection and dating dynamics for over 30 years. His work has provided much of the foundation which the modern red pill, pink pill, and manosphere dating advice has been based on. I wanted to find out how much of this guidance is accurate and how much has been lost in translation. Expect to learn how evolutionary psychology can help marriages to be much happier, what Jeffrey thinks about the modern manosphere, my hypothesis around the game theory of slut-shaming, the fundamentals that everyone needs to know about how sexual selection works, how women can hack their own hypergamy, why me and Jeffrey are going to dedicate our lives to existential risk, and much more. Before I get on to other news, me and Video Guy Dean are departing the UK for America tomorrow. On Tuesday, we are flying out, recording with Dr. Jordan B. Peterson later this week on 6K cinema cameras in some beautiful location in San Antonio, Texas. So if you want to know when that episode is ready to be listened to, you need to have hit the subscribe button and you might be listening but not subscribed. So just open whatever your podcast app is and... and press subscribe. It makes me happy, it supports the show, and it ensures that you never miss an episode. So go and do it. I thank you. But now, please welcome Jeffrey Miller. Jeffrey Miller, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Chris. Really excited. I just saw an article from Metro UK that's trending on Twitter today. Half of women aged 30 don't have children for the first time since records began. 50.1% of women born in 1990 haven't had children by 30, according to ONS stats. In comparison, 57% of women born in 1970, 76% born in 1950, and 86% of women born in 1941 all had at least one child by the time that they turned 30. That is crazy. It's a pretty big difference compared to what's, uh, you know, ancestrally normal for humans. I mean, bear in mind, you know, if people are reaching puberty at ages 12 to 14, and they're not, you know, reproducing for another, like, 16 to 18 years, that's that's like a hell of a delay. And, you know, my mom had me when she was 19, and that was pretty normal in the mid-60s. So on the one hand, if you compare age 30 to a modern career track for women, like if you're an academic female trying to get tenure, you know, you might have like grad school till age 26 or 28, postdocs till age 30, get your first assistant professor job, 30, six years till tenure, you know, you don't even feel financially secure till your late 30s, right? But biologically, you're like, I've been capable of having a kid, you know, for years and years and years. So it's a crazy mismatch. Dude. Mismatch I, is what we call it. A mismatch. Dig into that. What's that mean? Mismatch between what was ancestrally normal, like in prehistory versus what the modern world has. So, you know, a simple mismatch would be like what we eat in terms of modern American diet versus like paleo diet um, or how much sunshine we get if we're indoors most of the day versus out, outdoors. But I think the mating uh, market mismatch is a 
particularly interesting and frustrating. That's what I've been fascinated by for the last couple of months. It's so endlessly interesting. I learned, I can't remember what book it was. I want to say maybe Steve Stewart Williams' book, uh, The Ape Who Understood the Universe, about the effect of a couple who have been together for quite a while, elected not to have children. They chose not to, but find each other becoming increasingly unattractive and can't really explain why. Is this an effect that's that you're familiar with as well? This has not been very well studied, but I suspect there is maybe, maybe some kind of instinctive thing where, look, if you're a human and you're in like a long-term committed loving pair bond and you've been having sex with someone week after week, month after month, year after year, and you're still not pregnant, under ancestral conditions, that would have been a pretty strong cue that either you're infertile or they're infertile. But whatever the case is, this might not be a viable long-term relationship reproductively. And so, you know, maybe there's some emotional um, reaction to that that basically means I'm going to divest from this relationship. So that's another example of mismatch. Once you have effective contraception and you can have sex for years and years and years and no baby, what's the emotional impact of that we don't know i don't think it's been very well studied but i suspect it's uh often not good for relationships and people might find themselves sort of you know questioning their commitment or falling out of love a little bit or being a little less attracted to their partner and they might think like there's no rational reason for this i love them i'm committed maybe we're married we have a mortgage together. Why am I not into them anymore? It might be their body telling them, like, okay, if you love them, where's the baby? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's answer. because it, it doesn't know that you've elected to have this say, the fact that we have now been able to decouple having sex from making children because of effective contraception. There's a, isn't there an equivalent that women have either just before giving birth or just after giving birth that they can find? Is it the smell of their partner particularly uh, off-putting and it's something to do with the protectionist strategy and then perhaps the smell of their own family? Family members are increasingly attractive? Yeah, I've seen some stuff on that. I don't know how well replicated it is, but it would certainly make adaptive sense that, look, if you're <clears throat> heavily pregnant or you've just like where you might even be dilated and there might even be like an infection risk, if you had sex, might be bad for the, the baby. Or in the first few weeks after giving birth, like you don't want a woman to be like super horny then. And so she might downregulate how kind of biochemically attracted to husband she is. But on the other hand, she might be more attracted to boyfriend or husband and other family members in terms of like, I want cuddling, I want support, I want emotional closeness and intimacy. You know, because that's what you need when you've got a young baby. Did you see this Wall Street Journal article that got shared by Rob Henderson the other day? A gender split over sniffing a baby's scalp. Mothers get more aggressive and fathers less so when they inhale a chemical found in abundance on infants' heads. Did you see this? <laughs> I didn't see it, but it, it kind of makes sense because, like, look, when, when you're a new dad, um, 
and you're used to having a lot of testosterone and being kind of aggressive, you really want to go very, very gentle. You know, you really want to tamp Turn that everything down. down. Yeah. Because, and, and this is one reason testosterone levels drop when, when men have, have kids is to like basically reduce the risk of, of like frustration driven infanticide, you know. But on the other hand, women might need to get a little more protective about the baby and have a kind of a mama bear syndrome where, you know, they might actually need to get a little more vigilant for threats and a little more assertive about dealing with threats. As for many primate species, infanticide is a big, big problem. From the father? From the father and from other females often. How would it be adaptive to have infanticide from the father? It depends on how confident he is he's really the father. If he's highly confident, you do not want to kill your baby. But if if you have a lot of doubt, um, then this is like the grisly logic of evolution, and it's it's not pretty. But if you're pretty sure it's not your kid, then you'd really prefer that woman to start cycling again and get fertile again so you can have a kid with her lions do this all the time kill lion cubs that aren't theirs and a lot of primates do this also so yeah evolution's incredibly smart about kind of managing you know niceness versus um, aggression and who do you seek bonds and support with all throughout you know the reproductive cycle that's fascinating is it right to say that you're one of the OGs of applying evolutionary psychology to sexual dynamics, do you think? Your The Mating Mind book is 22 years old now. Yeah. I mean, it depends on how you count it, right? The real OG was Darwin. Darwin, 1871, Sexual Selection um, book. Amazing book. It had a huge impact on me. And then you get a kind of long lull. And then in the 70s, 1970s, you get sociobiology and E.O. Wilson, who recently, you know, died and then got canceled, um, posthumously, posthumously, posthumously canceled. canceled. <laughs> uh, and then you had people like anthropologist Don Simons, who wrote this amazing book, The Evolution of Human Sexuality, 1979. And that had a big impact on my little field, evolutionary psychology, which really only got started in kind of the mid to late 80s. And I got into it in grad school at Stanford, circa 1988-89. And I'd been writing about um, sexual selection and human evolution all throughout the 90s. And then finally, the Mating Mind book came out in the year 2000, um, five years later than I meant to publish it. But, you know, that's Bob Wright's book. uh, That came out, what, 93, 94? 93 or 4, yeah. Fuck, dude, that is so good. To go back and it read, really to go back and read that now. It's a, I did a I did a reading list, a free reading list last year, and I had ten books that were like you just have to before you read anything else. These are the ones that you have to read. And Bob Wright's was was in that. It's fucking phenomenal, man. Yeah, huge respect to him. I did a great podcast interview with him a couple of years ago. He's still active. Uh, that book, The Moral Animal, big impact. Steven Pinker's books throughout the late nineties, big impact. And there was kind of a golden age of uh, like popular science based on evolutionary psychology in kind of the, the 90s through early 2000s. 
before everything got super politically correct and woke. I was going to say, why do you think that's we're, we're lacking some of those discussions now? It's just extremely uh, difficult now to teach, even to teach undergraduates at most universities about like basic sex differences. You know, I've taught a class on psychology of human sexuality for about 20 years. And you increasingly get blowback from the undergrads, like complaining. Uh, I can't believe that Professor Miller is reinforcing the gender binary and he's like comparing male humans to males of other species. How dare he? And um, it's gotten like viciously and oppressively political, particularly the last five years. And that's sad because uh, undergrads really want to understand mating and sex and romance and they're kind of being denied that by like a tiny percentage of people who have a really strong political agenda such a shame man like if i don't know i think a lot i know that you're big into existential risk which is my other pet obsession and um that it really does feel like fucking being on the cusp of something absolutely terrible and awful happening that's just completely getting in the way. There's a, a quote someone put on a YouTube video a while ago. It's the loudest minority who act like they're steering the ship. And fuck if that's not true. Yeah. And so where where do undergrads go if they're curious to understand this, right? Hopefully they're listening to like your podcast. Hopefully they're reading Jordan Peterson. Um, there's this whole parallel, you know, intellectual ecosystem that's grown up that is much more honest about these things than anything you get in most American universities. Let's say that someone hasn't looked at dating and sexual selection through an evolutionary lens before. How do you introduce it to them? I think one important thing to point out is neither sex is at fault for what's going on. Like both sexes, men and women, both evolved to do the best they can given the reproductive incentives that they faced. And so neither sex is like the norm that you have to compare the other sex to. You often have men saying, oh my God, women are so neurotic, they're so anxious, they're so fearful, like that's weird, I don't get it. Well, if you take a woman's point of view, you know, ancestrally, if you're spending a significant amount of your adult life pregnant, or with a baby, or with young kids, you're, the objective risk that you face from predators and pathogens and diseases and starvation is just higher than what men face. So, of course, evolution shifts your kind of, you know, your risk tolerance in a different direction. And conversely, if women are like, oh my God, I can't believe men are so into status and aggression and dominance, and why do they do that? It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, if you think who managed to reproduce, which kind of men attracted women and had the, the status and social support and the influence to be attractive, like given female hypergamy, given female mate choice, of course, you know, we're all descended from males who played that game avidly. So I think one 
crucial kind of emotional insight from an evolutionary perspective is just to accept men and women and their natures as they are, you know, and then to figure out, okay, given that, plus like modern culture and technology, how do you do the best you can? Do you not find it fascinating to see how those predispositions that we have towards certain things that's the common thread that runs through everything and then it gets repackaged into memes that we see in fucking sitcoms and products uh, it's so when you start to understand the evolutionary underpinnings of why people like the things that they like and don't like the things they don't like it is it is kind of like seeing the code instead of seeing the the game yeah i I actually still like the uh, the red pill metaphor, and there's like so many things that have red pilled me. But probably evolutionary psychology was the biggest red pill for me. Just thinking, human nature and human culture as it is is the outcome of an extremely long story, a really long story, way back into deep time. And the better you understand that story, uh, the less puzzling modern life is. And I, it's gotten to the point where, like, if there's a married couple and they don't have evolutionary insights into their relationship and their their values and preferences and, and what drives their reactions, I think, like, why would you handicap yourself that way? Like, it's really sad. It, you'd be much better to go back to, like, read The Moral Animal by Robert Wright rather than go to marital therapy. Like, do both, but... Jesus, read something about human nature if if you really care about your relationship. What do you wish more married couples knew? I wish more married couples knew that you don't have to take your emotional reactions nearly as seriously as you typically do. For example, um, a lot of people think okay, I know I'm not supposed to like hit my spouse. I'm not supposed to do physical violence to my spouse. And so if I have an impulse to do that, I have to control that. That's not civilized. That's bad. However, there's a lot of other um, reactions we have that are basically uh, what economists call punishment routines. Like somebody else does something that pisses you off. Right, and you have a reaction to punish them to give some negative reinforcement. This can range from I want to hit them to I want to cuss at them to I don't want to talk to them for a day to I want to complain about them to my friends or God forbid on social media. Those are all punishment routines. The instinct to want to punish them, even over something that's maybe objectively trivial, can be very strong. But we have this double standard where like we go, okay, physical punishment, that's super bad. We don't do that in a civilized marriage. But all these other things, right, are still considered kind of fair game, even if they're objectively like a massive overreaction to what actually happened. I think conversely, if you understand like why we want to punish are made for certain like transgressions. You, then you can actually play with that. Like you can make it funny. You can kind of playfully exaggerate it. Give me an example. My wife, 
my wife Diane and I do this all the time. Like, um, if she's pissed off at me for whatever, failing to do something in the kitchen, instead of taking it seriously and going, oh my God, Jeffrey, you suck. You're such a bad husband. She'll start like mouthing nonsense syllables, but in an angry way, in kind of a self-mocking way. And so she'll be like, (laughs) and then I'll start arguing back using like my defensive, like nonsense syllables, like, why can we do that? Because we're both evolutionary psychologists and we both know at some level the desire to overpunish for trivial stuff is, is just ridiculous. And if you understand how ridiculous it can be, then you can make uh, fun of your own reactions. And then you're actually like closer to each other. Because like I have the faith that she has enough self-insight that she can mock her own like feminine responses. Programming, yeah. And she has confidence. I have enough insight into my sort of masculine nature and programming that I can make fun of it. And by contrast, you go to marital therapy. Most therapists will be like, you all have to be 100% earnest all the time about your feelings. And you have to take your feelings seriously and like express them. And and work through them and talk it out. It's like, so, no. Diana, if you were angry that Jeffrey had used the sauce and not put it away and you felt upset about it, then this is justified. We do not have any unjustified feelings in this. That's fucking yep. interesting. I've never been to counseling, uh, but I imagine in movies where I've seen it, that's what they do. Yeah, and it's there's very few good role models in movies or TV about how to manage these things. Like you'll almost never see somebody in a serious adult drama actually make fun of their own reactions in a kind of wise and insightful way. The only time that you would ever see it is kind of the ditzy female, classic American ditzy suburbs, early 30s, still not married, like wine aunt type, lovable, like always the bridesmaid, never the bride type one. Like, oh, here, here I go again, losing my shit about something that doesn't really matter, which is kind of touching. The reason that people laugh at it is the fact that they know there is a compulsion that is a part of her programming that had, if she had all of her uh, rational capabilities, she might dial that back. She might tamp that down a little bit. It's just that you try to turn that up to 11. Yeah, so that those are two big takeaways. Like, Try to have some insight into yourself and then try to be playful with it. Um, Before we started recording, we talked, for example, a little bit about uh, female hypergamy, which is, you know, women tend to be attracted to guys who have relatively high dominance or status or prestige or fame or whatever. That's another thing where you can kind of role play that stuff up in a relationship. So you can kind of create hypergamy even when it doesn't really exist at some objective level. And, uh, you know, people in like the BDSM and kink communities do this all the time with what they call power exchange, where it's like, okay, the, you know, the man's going to pretend to have some role, like he's the president or he's a CEO of something. And then the woman's going to pretend to be like, whatever the, um, Secretary, or the, some the shit. White House staff or a secretary, like whatever, whatever melts your butter. Like you can do that, and 
can actually help your stupid human brain think, oh yeah, my mate is actually really cool and like really powerful. Like if more people did that, I'm, I'm convinced that most relationships would be at least 50% happier. That's fucking interesting. A lot of what we've been talking, I had Vincent Haranam on, who is Rob Henderson's co-writer on some Quillette mm -hmm. articles, data scientist that's applied his data science to looking at dynamics in the market, dating market at the moment. And um, yeah, there's this sort of ongoing women are outperforming men everywhere at the moment in education. You can have two to one women uh, versus men in four-year U.S. colleges by 2030. Women earn £1,111 more than a man between the age of 21 and 29 on average at the moment. Um, and the the issue that you have if you try and look at it from like a public policy perspective, and it's so... It's so interesting that I I thought that you had to come up with a real-world rational solution to this, but the way that your brain interprets the situation, your brain isn't this fucking all-seeing, all-knowing thing. You can use the same tricks that it's trying to play on you against itself. And if little, you know, if you do have the high-powered boss bitch lady that's got herself into a relationship with a man who, you know, doesn't earn two mil a year as much as whatever it is that she does, um the fact that you can compensate for that by reversing the polarity in the bedroom is that's really really fucking interesting yeah and there's um yeah the like the the new agey tantric concept of polarity is something also most guys should learn more about like a masculine feminine how would you polarity. how would you introduce that to someone um just the idea that if you play up the the differences and the tension between sort of the masculine uh, role and the feminine role, that's actually quite a bit hotter um, than trying to achieve like similarity and equality, particularly in the bedroom, but in relationships generally. Uh, so if you go to Burning Man, right, you'll hear a lot of people talking about, man, you got to, you know, get into your masculine polarity and, and, rediscover your uh, your Jungian shadow, blah, blah, blah. And like, there's a lot of nonsense wrapped around it, but I think there are some deep evolutionary roots to some of that wisdom. Why do we find beautiful people attractive, do you think? I think beauty is partly uh, a legit indicator of health, fertility, youth, um, you know, capacity to reproduce. But then there's certain parts of beauty in our species and lots of other species that are kind of arbitrary. Like the fact that we have green or blue eyes rather than dark eyes, if you're from like a Northern European population, is that really adaptive in terms of like promoting um, survival better? Or is it just, oh, if you migrate to a Northern latitude out of Africa 150,000 years ago, you don't need a dark iris anymore to protect your iris from bright sun. You're free to evolve all kind of crazy new colors, like blue and green and hazel. Like, why? Because it's new and different, and apparently our ancestors thought that's kind of cool. So eye color might be one of those sexually selected traits that's a little bit, like, arbitrary. Likewise, maybe red and blonde hair color. Likewise, you know, a lot of the facial feature differences between like Africa, Europe, um, East Asia. 
who knows why they evolved. So I think beauty is like half really about fitness and health and half a little bit arbitrary. What are the traits that we usually enjoy? Someone doesn't understand sexual selection from a fitness signaling perspective. What are the typical traits that people enjoy? Well, when Tucker Max and I wrote that mate book, we, we put a lot of emphasis on just overall competence. Like what is attractive about a guy uh, to a woman? Just he can do stuff effectively, capability, competence. And in the, in the physical domain, that's like, does he look like he could actually hunt an animal successfully? Could he run? Can he jump over stuff? Could, like, could he throw things? Could he drag back a 100-pound gazelle from five miles away? If he doesn't look like he could do that, like, why would you mate with him? Because you know, if you're a woman in prehistory and you've got babies, one of the main roles for the guy is provide meat you know, provide resources. And any guy who looks like he's not going to be a good hunter is not going to be very attractive sexually. Likewise, he should look like he can potentially protect you against other men who might want to kill your baby or, you know, rape your woman or um, fight against your tribe. So if you look like you're capable of defending someone, then that's attractive. And... I think a lot of it just boils down to that. Like, what are the physical cues that that mean, you know, you look like you'd be a good bet for a long-term mate who's capable of having kids, providing for them, protecting them, and, um, you know, helping them grow. What do you say to the people that go, Jeffrey, that's dumb. I don't need a man to drag a, an antelope 500 meters anymore. This is the real world in 2022. I don't, this doesn't matter anymore. I'd say that's that's largely true objectively, but it can be quite hard to rewire your brain to say, oh, actually, I, I'm really attracted to like guys who are five foot two rather than six foot two. Like, fine, you can do that. I don't know that many women who are successful at doing that. And you know, the the data from dating apps says. Height is a major predictor of attractiveness on dating apps. Income, major predictor for men. Um, so, on the one hand, if you're a smart woman, you can use the evolutionary psychology insights to go, okay, even though he's only five foot four, He's great on these other, like a dozen other dimensions. You can leverage that to overcome your kind of aversion to shortness, right? And that can be really good. Just like a man could, you know, overcome aversion to some, you know, issue that a woman has, it doesn't actually matter now. Um, like maybe she's got some disability, she's missing an arm from a motorcycle accident, whatever it is. Like, there are ways you can kind of hack your, your, your brain to say that's okay, given all the other traits that are, that are good in this person. But man, if you don't have an evolutionary perspective, how do you do that, that hacking of your own brain? You don't even know where these preferences come from. So it's extremely hard to change them. What about from uh, men to women? What are men looking for? 
it depends a lot on whether men are looking for a short-term mate or a longer-term mate. We know what men are looking for in a short-term mate, right? It's basically cues of youth and fertility and sexual accessibility. And, you know, we're descended from male ancestors who were kind of scanning the environment for like, where's an easy way to have extra reproductive success with minimal investment? That would basically be any young, healthy woman who seems like fit and fertile and relatively like unchoosy, right? That's like minimum investment, maximum ROI. But then for a long-term mate, you know, if you're actually going to pair bond with someone, stick around, raise kids with them, then men get a lot choosier about women's uh, mental traits like intelligence and creativity and sense of humor and women's like emotional traits like stability and conscientiousness and reliability um, and, and about women's social status. Like, does she have a lot of friends? What's her family like? Um, is she socially savvy? Can she be a good kind of um, almost political companion where we can be like the tribal power couple. But I think it's important, like it's really important for men to understand the short versus long-term difference. Because if you don't, you end up choosing women for the short-term attractive traits, and then you get stuck in a relationship with them, and then you're like, oh no, she's like neurotic and not that smart and a bad match, but sex uh, is I guess great. we're but the sex is great for a while until it isn't. So I think, again, the better that men understand this, you know, the easier it is to sort of be honest with yourself about what are you really looking for and what length of relationship are you, are you seeking? I had a conversation about this the other day, talking about the difference between beauty and hotness. Now you might have different terms for it in the literature, but uh, an immediate, very sexually available signal of fitness versus a more timeless, graceful, more subtle signal of fitness. And um, I am absolutely adamant that society is signaling almost exclusively of hotness at the moment, that the inherent transactional, transient nature of most of young people's relationships, where basically they're masturbating with somebody else's body, uh, mm. and they just that there happens to be another consciousness in the room, um, yeah. that that is leading into hotness being used as the fundamental cue so look at i don't even know if these magazines exist anymore but you know if you were to get a girl on the front of some lad mag some boys mag that's got fast cars and like scantily clad women that they're not selecting for beauty they're purposefully selecting for hotness i did two reality tv dating shows i did love island and one called take me out and on that the same they're not selecting for women that are beautiful. That's not to say that some of them aren't or weren't beautiful, but the primary value that they're selecting for is hotness because they only have six weeks. If you only got six weeks in a villa and you have to share a bed, there's half the number of beds as there are people, so you're sharing a bed with somebody every night um, and they need you to switch, switch, switch. There's a, two eliminations a week and all this stuff. Um, they need they need hotness. You can't You can't have something that takes you three months to fully appreciate all of the nuances of Louisa's fucking back arch. It's like, no, 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 no. The, yeah. the, the half sleeve tattoo and the lip piercing will do it for you straight away. Yeah, exactly. And 
there's an there can be enormous pressure to kind of signal hotness. So I think tattoos and piercings and certain kinds of, you know, dressing in a certain way that basically advertises like I'm, you know, potentially open to short term mating. What do you think it is? If if we match, what do you think it is about piercings and tattoos? What do you think is the subtext behind that? I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit culturally arbitrary that it, it has become associated with openness to, to kind of short-term mating or, you know, openness to being open or polyamorous or whatever, openness to threesomes, whatever, whatever you're into. Um, but once you get the signal established, once there's kind of a social consensus that, oh, if you have a lot of tattoos, that's signaling a degree of sexual openness that would not be welcome in Salt Lake City among the Mormons – you know, but would be welcomed in like Brooklyn or LA or whatever. But, but I think your point about hotness versus beauty is is really uh, on on the money. And like some women are so beautiful, like whatever Kate Blanchett or Anne Hathaway or certain actresses like that, where it's it's like almost hard to sexually objectify them. Like it it feels almost wrong to sort of put them in the category of like. Oh, she's so hot. Because classy beauty, you immediately think, oh, I wish I had a wife like that. Right. Or I wish I had a girlfriend like that. Um, I suspect there's something parallel with men where like certain men radiate kind of like short-term hotness rather than like good long-term husband potential. You probably encountered this in the modeling world a little bit. Correct. And in the nightlife world a lot, dude. I mean, because I see... It's so funny. You know when you go into a nightclub and there's a strobe light on and you don't actually, when there's a strobe light, you don't see people move. You see snapshots of the person. It's they're here, then they're here, then they're here, then they're here. Um, And running a club night is exactly the same as that, but socially. So I only get to see people for five hours on a Thursday and a Friday or whenever it is that your particular portfolio of events is running for that season or that year or whatever. And you see things happen. So you'll see... um, new group of fresher students arrive and then maybe this guy and this girl, maybe they meet each other and then maybe they hook up and then maybe they start talking and then maybe they're together for a bit. And then maybe this new girl comes in and, but you don't see everything happen. You just see kind of like this brief window into it. And dude, it's so fucking interesting to see, to be able to select the kids that are going to be the ones that are going to have the status that are highly regarded and you're right. I mean, there's something there's something around girls that wear those choker necklaces that have been accused of being a, a black belt for blowjobs by not me. Um, and you, you see that certain signals play out. And that's what creates the stereotypes culturally. You know, you see something, it gets reinforced, and then maybe people see that and think well i've just got out of a relationship with a boyfriend why don't i get a nose ring and start wearing choker necklaces because that's what the culture is telling me that sort of person does and it it just starts to feed itself yeah and i think i would just caution young people like what you want is you want maximum flexibility to adjust your signals that you're sending out in a way that is like dynamic and adaptive. If you get a permanent tattoo that's visible in every job interview or 
at at your wedding or whatever. Like it's hard to go back from that. It's hard to do tattoo removal. Whereas if you're wearing, you know, black belt choker, at least you can take that off and like then become respectable on Monday. Don't need to still wear it at the wedding, yeah. So um like the of course the more permanent the signal, the more credible a signal it is because it shows extra commitment. But I think a lot of young people really like they have a very short-term time horizon and they're really not thinking ahead about how is this tattoo really going to look in 15 years? Is my future toddler going to make fun of it? <laughs> Talk to me about um, hard to fake versus easy to fake signals of, of fitness and, and prestige and stuff. I find that really interesting. Yeah, I got to kind of obsessed with this branch of uh, economic game theory called signaling theory back in the late 90s. And it had a big impact on most of what I wrote since then. The basic concept is if you're trying to signal something like you're a male animal and you're trying to signal, I could fight you, I could win, right? The most reliable signals are the ones that are hard to fake where there's some pretty strong connection between like the trait you're trying to show off, like formidability or capacity for violence or body size, pretty strong connection between that and the actual signal that you're displaying, right? So a lot of animals will kind of fluff themselves up and make their hair stand on end, or if they have feathers, they'll like make a big show of it. So they're exaggerating their body size to intimidate rivals. But there's still a correlation between like your wingspan and and like the part of your body that can actually fight. Um, now at the at a kind of like uh, cultural level, I did a whole book called Spent um, in 2009 that was about conspicuous consumption, and there it's more often a matter of I'm going to buy and display some particular good or service that is objectively expensive in order to show off I can afford it. And there, like the credibility of the signal depends on like, is it real? It, like, is it actually a designer handbag or a real Rolex or is it fake? And do you really own that Bugatti or did you just rent it for the weekend? Right. <clears throat> and so, you know, people seeing this stuff are naturally kind of skeptical. Like if you see somebody wearing what looks like a Rolex, but everything else in their life is is kind of like shitty and cheap, then you figure, ah, oh, that's probably fake. Um, whereas if someone's already famous for being a billionaire, and like you can easily Google them and you can see their net worth, then they can just wear you know terrible Henley shirts or whatever, and nobody cares because they don't have to signal through consumerism. I learned, I can't remember the Scott Alexander blog post. He did a glorious blog post. It wasn't, I can't tolerate anything except the out group. It was something similar to that, where he talked about the fact that if you have um, four layers to classes, that the top layer can use any of the bottom two's fashions, but it can't use the one below. And the same thing goes for everybody else is trying to signal that they are. But then you get counter signals, which is the person at the very, very top cares so little. And you see this in hipster culture, especially in the UK now, dude, 
some of the outfits that guys and girls go out wearing. I'm where the actual living fuck did you get those clothes from? They look terrible, but it's a signal of I'm so cool. I don't need to adhere to your idea about what cool is. My cool is so huge and fucking compensatory. It has its own orbit that I can still be cool even whilst wearing this 30-year-old mothball-ridden fleece. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and the counter-signaling, um, which is where, like, you would normally expect someone to signal in a certain way, but actually they're kind of signaling the opposite, but the viewer is savvy enough to figure out that, oh, they could have done the usual signal, but they're intentionally not. Um, and like high fashion, haute, haute couture is an interesting case where basically you take like a 19-year-old, you know, six-foot-tall, super beautiful model, and you put something absolutely ridiculous, like truly absurd on her. And as long as it required like at least you know, 5,000 person hours of, of effort to do all the stitching, then you can sell it to like a 50-year-old socialite who doesn't actually look that good, right? And that to me is very bizarre because um, you basically have like clothes that are so ridiculous that only truly beautiful fit women can wear them, but they're being bought mostly by women who aren't. And and that's kind of sad. Social proof's an interesting one. I think that's kind of been co-opted as a part of high value now, high value men and high value women. But I find social proof to be quite interesting coming from a nightlife background because that's what we're playing off. You know, I need to get each year in order to run my business, I need about 300 to 400 kids between the age of 18 and 21 that are the ones that are cool, that are in the know, that are going to the right parties, that are sleeping with the right people, that are sniffing the right drugs or whatever. Like they, they need to, that, that, that's the social proof. And then we've um, commercialized that, we've utilized that to reflect what it means to go to voodoo events, right? You go to a voodoo events event and but, oh, but that's the one that's run by the really good looking Canadian kid or whatever it might be. Um, but social proof happens on an individual level too, right? Yeah, totally. It, in my experience, like evolutionary psychology was one important red pill, but marketing, understanding marketing and branding and how influencers work was another major red pill. And I, I think it's also crucial for people to understand, particularly in a modern social media economy where you know, influencers are really driving um, a lot of the desirability of goods and services or experiences like going to a particular club. And we are just such hyper-social primates who are just so tuned into these cues that it's, it's kind of easy to manipulate that. And just you, you find the attractive people and associate them with a particular brand and everyone's like, oh, I guess that's cool. Dude, that's, that's, cool that's, that's our industry. Yeah. That's what nightlife is. So there was a lady, Ashley Mears. You familiar with her? Mm. Oh, she, she wrote an awesome book. Uh, she was previously a top model in New York up until the age of about 25, but she was always at uni doing sociology throughout. Left, uh, became a professor, 
um, and then decided to do ethnographic research becoming a party girl. So 31 years old, still very good-looking girl, but now 10 years older than the girls that she's going out with. And they were um, the ones that were filler girls. So they got taken. We don't really have this so much in the UK, a little bit in London, but not so much. Um, there would be a, a host of an event that would get the girls and they'd go and get sushi or whatever, like the, the after dregs of the sushi. And then he'd take them into the club and they'd sit on the tables with the guys that were spending money so that they would feel, and that's your conspicuous consumption thing. But that insight around girls being used to change the experience, even though the guys that are on the table know that they're kind of not there with them, but it's a signal... I, it's not conspicuous consumption, is it? What's is that? Is that that um, status and prestige by being associated with beautiful women? Therefore, I am as well. Is that what's going on? Well, there's a lot of mate choice copying dynamics where, like, in a lot of uh, species, if you're a male and some female is cl- like clearly interested in you, then <clears throat> the other females nearby will pay attention to that and they'll imitate the mate choices made by the other female, particularly if the other female is like more attractive or older or more, more experienced. And so you get like this winner take all thing like Beatlemania, right? Where everyone's like, Oh my God, he's so cool. Why? Just because all the other people think he's cool. You know, Justin Bieber, who, um, this doesn't happen as much with men being attracted to women, but it, it does also happen there. And it's it's another thing that you can exploit in marketing, of course. Mm. An article came out in Psychology Today yesterday. Uh, The result of this exercise and study was that three traits emerged as general necessities, kindness, physical attractiveness, and good financial prospects. So that was both male and female. Uh, There was variation. Men tended to view women's financial prospects as a luxury and only Eastern women saw religiosity as a necessity. Do you see that? It only came out yesterday. Didn't see it. Dude, but- it's all, I'll send it to you once, once we're done. It's really, really fucking interesting. So they had a bunch of different criteria for men and women, West and East, and looked. But across them all, you did have some fairly universals, kindness, physical attractiveness, and good financial prospects. I think humor was the one that just about got missed off as well. Yeah, and if you if you dig down a little bit into those three traits, and you're like, Whoa, why would that matter? Well, like physical attractiveness is pretty closely associated with health and longevity, which is like, okay, how long could I potentially be in a relationship with this person, like before they get sick and die? So it's kind of a time dimension. The resources dimension is like, how much could they potentially? give to me or help support me or like transfer to me that would be useful to me and like my kids and our life. And then kindness is like, will they actually transfer those benefits to me or withhold them for themselves or give them to somebody else? Right? So if you kind of multiply, like how long could the relationship last times how big are the resources times like what proportion of the attention and investment do I get? Like that kind of covers a lot of what you want from a long-term mate. It's a pretty good fucking function, yeah. It's a pretty good heuristic. And like it's okay to – it's not like we're doing some Excel spreadsheet where it's like I have to rate all potential mates 
on the following 200 traits and like do a weighted linear model and like weigh it up and then like choose the best one. I know rationalists who do that, literally, but you can achieve like a decision that's like 95% that good based on just a handful of simple traits. Yeah. I, I remember tweeting you, I think it was probably two years ago, just as I'd started to really get into evolutionary psychology. And I had a problem that um, the more that I saw, the more I couldn't unsee. Yeah. And I can't remember what your advice was. I, I'm sure it was great. I haven't forgotten it because it was rubbish. But I, I think it was something along the lines of, like, it gets worse before it gets better. You mm-hmm. start to see things. Because one of the criticisms that... And, and I, I understand this. You know, I, I try and put this across when I'm talking about these dynamics, is that... I'm not trying to be dispassionate about this. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for love and a sense of phenomenological existential connection with somebody that you genuinely care about. I'm not trying to reduce it down to the, you know, the autistic Excel spreadsheet. Um, but there is a there is a big period where you go through kind of seeing things for what they are, for the signals that they are, or for the reasons that people's motivations have them to do this. What what would you say to someone that begins tumbling down the evolutionary psychology dating dynamics rabbit hole and starts to kind of, I don't know, is there like a, a nihilism, like when people learn about free will, is there an equivalent nihilism that happens with evolutionary psychology? It can it can be tough for, for a while. I, I do think there's a little bit of a, like a dark valley that you go through that's basically like, you know, maybe you read The Moral Animal and you read some David Buss stuff and some Steve Pinker stuff and you read, yeah, The the, the Apes That Understood the Universe by Steve Stewart Williams. Great book. I've actually used that as required textbook in some courses. Dude, that what a fucking um, great textbook. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. covers so much. It covers like 80% of Psych in a really digestible way. So good to Steve Stewart Williams for doing that. So... I've seen this a lot. You you get undergrads and they learn these things and they can get kind of despondent and kind of depressed for a while. Um, it might last a few months or they might like take a course and then come back a couple of years later into office hours and go, wow, the first year after I learned about EvPsych was rough. Like I saw all this stuff going on in a new new light and I became very cynical about people's motives and their their self-deception and all their little stratagems and all their bullshit. And I saw through it. But then, um, how do you come out of it? You um, Once you start living with the idea that humans are just like animals, like other species, and you get used to that, and then you can start to see but what extraordinary animals are we? Like, it's so awesome. Other animals just running around doing all this sexual competition shit and all this mate choice shit and based on really dumb traits. Like, oh, I want to have sex with the bigger gorilla, not the smaller gorilla, or the bird with better plumage. And then it's like, oh, at least we have the blessings of being able to talk and be creative and do art and music and humor and all this other amazing stuff. And we have a form of romantic love that is like really sweet and very emotionally intimate compared to what most other animals do. 
and then you start seeing the bright side and then you can kind of get excited again about human life what's your thoughts on the manosphere i have mixed feelings about it but largely positive like um i've been a sort of uh observer of it for like 15 years or so ever since the early days of like pickup artists in the early 2000s and um uh david d'angelo aka uh evan pagan is a good friend of mine and i've like appeared at david d'angelo events like 15 years ago it was strange to see like second and third hand ideas from like my early work getting kind of recycled into manosphere like wisdom or or good advice or often bad advice uh and then get into arguments with manosphere guys who are like miller you don't understand human sexual dynamics at all and let this me this is my me fucking preach, work like, like <laughs> preach let me preach let me explain to you how sexual selection works I'm like dude you're literally quoting back to me something i wrote in 1994 like thanks but <laughs> I think for a lot of young men, um, they need like older, successful role models who can explain this stuff to them in a very no bullshit, unpretentious way. You know, and that's what Tucker Max and I were trying to do with our mate book. It was kind of like conjoin evolutionary psychology with like brutally simple language that even your average like twenty year old could understand. And, you know, sometimes the Manosphere guys get a little bit um, overconfident. I don't know what's up. Maybe their, their testosterone supplementation is too high or whatever. But they get a little feisty and a little combative. But um, I just think if you're, if you're a young man listening to this, it's, it's important to choose your role models uh, carefully. And like, try to choose guys who are actually succeeding at something other than just giving advice. Like, who can actually have good conversations with a variety of people on their podcast, or actually are making money in crypto, or have actually founded some company that's doing well, or um, who aren't just like anonymous behind the scenes kind of manosphere trolls. The thing that surprised me when I was watching, uh, reading Mate, your book, which is fucking dope, by the way, if there are guys out there that want to kind of learn the principles of evolutionary psychology for mating, and I think that women should read that book as well, because where are all the good men at is probably a pretty fair question to ask at the moment, and if you want to be able to coach whoever it is that you're with in order to be better, or to be able to understand what it is that you actually want, really, really fucking good book. It'll be linked in the show notes below. Um, but one of the things that really surprised me about that book was how long you guys spent in a dating book for men explaining to men about what it feels like to be a woman in the dating space. That was that was a like a really, really welcome surprise. One of the problems that I have, the specific problem that I have with the manosphere is it treats women like the enemy, fundamentally. That is the primary problem that I have with it. And I really, really try to toe the line. I'm happy with un uncomfortable insights, right? I'm fucking all day. I'll talk about them because they're cool. Like watching the fallibility of your own world crumble in front of your eyes. Is there something kind of humbling about that? Like we're looking up at the night sky, right? Like it's awe and it's dread at the same time. It's kind of cool. 
but you can push that so easily, you know, the hypergamous nature of women that they really don't have that much control over and saying, oh, you are actually only a five out of ten, so you shouldn't be thinking you need to get with a man that does that's homeless and lives on a couch and smokes weed all day. Like, all right, man, like, is that not being fucking done to death where you get idiot thoughts from Miami and put them on a podcast and do whatever? But yeah. there's a big section where you try and explain to men about what it's like to be a woman um understanding girls feelings around physical safety objectification creeps being self-conscious and stuff like that and that is so fucking important i think for men to understand yeah tucker and i did you know a a podcast called mating grounds we did like 250 episodes or something unreal and 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 that that insight about hey guys you know if you want to have success with women maybe radical idea maybe you should spend like at least a nanosecond <laughs> trying to look at the world through a woman's point of view. And the number of guys we had call in to that podcast going like, wow, I never actually did that. Like even though I have a mom and multiple sisters and many like ex-girlfriends, I never actually thought, okay, what would the dating scene be like if I felt physically vulnerable, sexually vulnerable, if a lot of the guys who approach me are straight up like sociopaths and bad dudes because they're the only ones who have the courage to be super assertive, right? So you're getting a biased sample of men or online, you're getting a biased sample of like a lot more trolls than good guys because trolls are very, very active. And just like spend a minute thinking about that and then think how, how as a you know, an honorable man who has his shit together. Can you like break through all of that noise and and chatter and fear and kind of like present yourself as, hey, how you doing? My name is blah, blah, blah. Um, Just like have a normal conversation. So perspective taking is, I think, really crucial in this. What do you think there's a, about the zero-sum mentality that I said about the manosphere? Because that's how it feels to me. It feels to me like a lot of the fundamentally um, good but delivered poorly and with a snide topspin advice from men sees any man's gain as a woman's loss. Like It's, it's weird that a lot of the time they're talking about um, how to get women and to get with women and then when a woman does, there's this sort of low-key admission that that's somehow their loss. Like, because you gave yourself away to this guy that we've coached to try and get himself into the position of how he can have sex with you, now you're a slut. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally toxic. It's bizarre. And the the irony is, a lot of the guys in the manosphere, if you ask, like, do you believe in capitalism or, like, communism and redistribution? They're like, capitalism, why? Oh, because like economic exchange is positive some, because we can all get wealthier if we like provide good, good goods and services to each other. And then you're like, okay, that makes sense in economic markets. Why do you think the mating market is somehow zero sum? Like there's, there's some obvious low hanging fruits. Like if you have dating apps that are really, really good at matching people based on genuine compatibility, that's a win-win for everybody. It's way better than living in some medieval village where you have three potential mates and none of them share your interests 
and probably can't even read, right? So there's there's so many positive some uh, ways we could we could restructure the mating market to work better for everybody. I took a quote from Mate and I put it in a newsletter the other day. So I'm gonna two of both of our obsessions, game theory and um, dating dynamics. Um, so this was to do with slut shaming. Uh, female promiscuity has a tragedy of the commons effect in the mating market. If one woman offers blowjobs on the second date, it's harder for other women to keep them in reserve until the fourth date is their special treat. This creates a downward spiral of young women feeling like they have to offer more sex and uh, to more guys just to stay in the mating game. Thus, slut shaming is a way of enforcing a more restrained sexual norm on other women so that not all women have to become more promiscuous than any one of them would like. That shit fucking blew my mind. And it's really, it, unless you have this kind of game theory perspective, it's really hard to understand why slut shaming is mostly done by women to other women. Correct. It also makes right? a lot of sense around why women tend to be the enforcers of slut shaming because uh, so frequently because women are the ones who have an incentive to protect the sexual marketplace from becoming a price war of easy sex. Yeah. And this is also why, you know, the main opponents of sex work are often married women right? Because they have the most to lose if husband goes off, you know, and spends money on an escort or some financial dominatrix or whatever. And if you just ask, like, okay, where are people's incentives? You know, what's the incentive to impose a certain social norm on human sexuality? Often, it's not that hard to figure out why it's happening. There's another case, I did a little bit of research around who opposes abortions, mostly. And it's women. There are more women that oppose abortions than there are men. And I think there, it, a lot of that might be a, a bit of a virtue signal, right? Because if you're, if you're a woman who's like, babies are sacred, we have to protect babies, it's kind of like a way of saying, my maternal instincts are better than yours, and I'm going to be a good mom. And one way I demonstrate I will be a good and devoted mom who who will you know protect your babies is to insult other women who seem not to protect their fetuses. And you know I did a whole book on virtue signaling, so I think a lot of this is um, just all the ways we demonstrate like we're morally good people, and so you can trust me, and I'm I'm good and. You know, you, you and I are both pretty active on Twitter, and honestly, like 60% of the shit on Twitter is virtue signaling to me. Oh, I would say probably even more. Most of the time, people aren't saying the thing that they're saying. It's just a signal around the thing that they think they're supposed to say. Here's how I see that, that play out so much. Very rarely do you ever see someone respond to a tweet. Let's say that there's a back and forth of trying to dunk on each other. Nobody... I, I can't remember the last time I saw it where someone said that is out of fucking order. Like you can't mm -hmm. say that nobody ever wants to get to the stage where they call a stop to the game because the cool thing to do on Twitter is be this dispassionate fucking edge Lord that just replies with memes of Kathy Griffin, uh, Kathy yeah. Newman uh, or Kathy Griffin. Um, because that's, what's cool. 
because the signal is I'm so unperturbed by this. I've got so much other stuff that I could be doing. You're getting 1% of my attention as opposed to saying, uh, hang on a second. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? That is an unacceptable thing to post to me. Yeah, my usual response when people just get out of order is I just block them. Like I blocked probably 30 people a day. Um, <clears throat> but conversely, you know, you can almost feel yourself getting swept up in that kind of edge lord like um, game. I try to catch myself where I think, you know what? Once in a while, at least a few times a day, I should be like, good point. You're right. I should look into that more. Yep. It's hard to do, though. It's hard because it's so fucking hard. It feels like you're being submissive. Yep. It feels like you're you're losing. Um, but actually, to onlookers, I think to a lot of people watching the interaction, it's actually kind of cool to do that jujitsu move of like, yeah, we've been escalating this argument, but actually on this one issue, you're right. Yeah, well, that's a counter signal, right? That I am exactly. prepared to be so humble. Yeah, one of my favorite things to do, sometimes people have problems with the balance of guests. It's too much, uh, too right-wing or too male-dominated or too white or too whatever. Uh, and the only thing that I ever apply with is, who would you like me to bring on? Yeah. Like, give me, tell me. Tell me. Put it, in the, put it in the comments. Tell me who you think that I should bring on that fills the criteria that you have got an issue with, and the it I, I, I can't remember the last time that someone responded to that. They put a dickish comment. I asked a question. Their reply is almost never dickish. It's almost always well. Actually, here's a list of five people that I think are really interesting, and some YouTube videos on where you get started. P.S. Really love the show. And you're like, oh, okay. We've managed to neutralize this. There's so, there's a lesson to be learned there. I think about de-escalating. Um, de-escalating aggression yeah and you know twitter to any psychologist is just such a fascinating like hunting grounds for insights into human nature and um that's one of the reasons i'm i'm so active on it is i'm always like partly involved as kind of a twitter player but it's so easy to go meta and to be like this is just this is so funny, like 8 billion primates running around on social media, just like bashing each other verbally and playing these little status games and virtue signaling games. I want to finish off that slut shaming thing. So I, that's the first half of it, right? That's what you guys put forward in the book. Um, and then I worked it through using bro science uh, on my newsletter. Uh, reading that first section about the fact that women enforce it mostly and why you can't have the price of sexual access kind of get spiraled down and down. Reading that got me thinking about the equivalent for men, and I think that it explains simp shaming too. So I reword what you put at the top. Male resource commitment has a tragedy of the commons effect in the mating market. If one man offers gifts and resources by the second date, it's harder for the other men to keep them in reserve until the fourth date is their special treat. This creates a downward spiral of young men feeling like they have to offer more and more gifts and go on extre uh, increasingly extravagant dates to more and more women just to stay in the mating game. Thus, simp shaming is a way of enforcing a more restrained resource-giving norm on other men so that not all men have to become more resource-committed than any of them would like. Similarly, this explains why men are mostly the enforcers of simp shaming, because men have an incentive to stop simps from cheapening the value of all men's resources. It's hardly an iron law, 
men call women sluts and men uh, women call men simps all the time but this game theory explanation makes a lot of sense to me if women give sex without commitment it cheapens the value of sex if men give resources or commitment without sex it cheapens the value of resources and commitment yeah and you you can see this in some weird little subcultures like financial domination right where you might not be familiar with this but there's a certain kind of online sex worker who's just like, I'm the dominatrix, you send me money, men who fetishize supporting women will just send these women like thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. Oh, and they, they sometimes they drip feed it back to them as an allowance and stuff, right? Yeah, and it, I don't really get it, but like whatever, um, as long as you're a lot, not like a married guy and you're taking money out of your, your mortgage account and sending it to some other random woman, but whenever other guys hear about guys who are into being fin-domed, financially dominated, like that's like the ultimate simp. And then the, the teasing is like relentless. Um, I think there's even a bit of um, stigma about you know, men who visit sex workers for the same reason. It's like, uh, how much are you paying? Like, why can't you just go to you know, Chris's club and pick up a woman for, for free, whatever? Um, but I think this, this is what, you know, cultural norms are, is our, it's often our attempts to kind of control the mating dynamics of other people. Why do you think it is that men who work on their charisma or their, um, abilities with women in like a, an overt conscious way? Why do you think it is that there's a bit of an ick factor sometimes around that, both from men and women? I think it's a funny thing. I don't, I don't know how much of that is kind of unique to like this particular cultural moment in like British and American um, mating dynamics. I don't know how much of it is just a sort of like innate wariness of any guys who give off cues of being kind of Machiavellian or sociopathic or narcissistic, right? There's this concept of the dark triad, personality traits, psychopathy, Machiavellianism, narcissism. And so the guys who are high on those dark triad traits do tend to care a lot about like good body, how they dress, how they act, you know, maximizing like cues of dominance and status that they display and kind of parlaying that into, into mating success. Um, but, you know, the guys who really benefit from like reading mate or reading manosphere stuff are not typically those dark triad guys. They're more often guys who are kind of like a little socially awkward and aspie like me or like I used to be and still am where it's like, I just don't understand women. I don't understand clothing. How do I get in shape? What is a conversation? <laughs> like doing kind of remedial work on that, I think is, you know, that's a, that's a huge win because there's a lot of guys out there with amazing uh, potential that's not realized. Why? Because K through 12 public education doesn't teach any of this stuff. Why would it? Uh, male mentors like 
guys' dads and uncles don't seem to be bothering to teach it. Well, I think as well the the gap between that generation and where we are now in terms of what you need to know in order to be effective in the mating market. This is one of the common criticisms thrown around at some of the guys in the manosphere that, bro, you've been married for fucking 40 years. Like you, you, you literally got into a relationship during a different, like a prehistoric era. Yeah, I think that is like 50% accurate and 50% like a bullshit cope because human nature doesn't change that much. I agree. Generation to generation. It might be true that a lot of guys, dads and granddads and uncles didn't actually have that much like mating experience themselves. Right? They might not have actually had that many girlfriends. They might have only been in the mating market for like two years before they married someone as a college sophomore. Right? Um, so they might not know what they're talking about. But on the other hand, uh, you know, to the extent that they've had real life experience and mating experience, um, there's no expiration date on on human wisdom about sexuality. One so of the- just yeah, just just because you're doing a, a dating app and you're like meeting people through you know Instagram or TikTok or whatever, does not really change the basic like traits that people are looking for or the the trade-offs they're facing. I think one of the things as well, specifically on the guy's side, is that men like to see proof of work or the equivalent of proof of work, right? From, to use a crypto metaphor, like where's yeah. your, where, show me your workings. Where's your, yeah. where's your proof? It's like having a fat personal trainer. Like, it's mm-hmm. fine. I'm sure that you can get me in shape, but I'm probably going to have a little bit more faith in the, in the trainer that's not fat. Yeah. Um, and it's the same thing with this, that people want to see pr- proof of work. Why do you think, I thought about this loads, I think there is a, a subreddit called the pink pill, but it's a little bit more like r slash women's rights rather than here are the fundamental principles of evolutionary psychology that you should use to become a more attractive, better balanced partner for the man that you actually want to settle down with. Um, yeah. Why do you think there isn't, a pink pill there there really needs to be and i think a, an awful lot of young women would be <clears throat> you know a hell of a lot happier if they had more um insight into their own preferences and desires and frustrations and where they come from and how to manage them better um my wife diana is working on a, a sort of advice book for women and I don't want to give away too much information about it, but what Diana has noticed in reading many, many advice books for women is that they're like 98% validation and 2% actually like you need to change this, right? A typical like Jordan Peterson book for young men is like 98%, you kind of suck and you really need to get your shit together. (laughs) And here's all the things you need to do because no, you're not actually a very good guy yet. And you can become that, but you're not. Women's advice books more often are like, you're awesome, you're a queen, like, you're wonderful. And men don't appreciate that yet. And here's how to manipulate them into appreciating your, your inner awesomeness. I think that's terrible. Like, everybody who's young needs to work on themselves in all kinds of ways. So I think the absence of a pink pill is partly 
young women are so used to being kind of coddled in terms of advice that they get. And I see this in academia too, in terms of like how mentors treat grad students. Uh, like you can give pretty brutal feedback to male students often. And they'll be like, yeah, you're right. I didn't work very hard on that paper. I need to fix it. Uh, it's extremely tricky to give brutally honest feedback to a lot of female students now because it'll be like, you're just sexist, you're patriarchal. Like, Does that actually, you... have you seen this happen to colleagues or whatever? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty common. It's a pretty, uh, and it's really handicapping because like if you're trying to learn how to uh, run a study or do science or write a journal paper or give a talk, like you really need a lot of brutally honest feedback to get better. It'd be like trying to become an Olympic, um, you know, skier where your coach is always like, awesome run. Oh, another awesome run. Like great turn. Uh, no, you're not going to make progress without clear feedback. So I think there needs to be a little bit of a cultural shift where young women need to appreciate like it's not actually doing you any favors in the long run to never get any any honest advice about what you're doing wrong. I wouldn't want that either. The girls that I know that I'm friends with would feel so fucking patronized if they mm -hmm. found out that because of other girls who were kind of lauding this sort of Damocles thing over the head of whoever it is that was potentially going to give them this feedback, as soon as they stray into an area that they think that, um, which again, presumably is the loud minority that believe they're steering the ship. If I, if any of the girls that I'm friends with knew that that was happening, they would be very, very unhappy. There is a big, big chunk of them that just want to become better and improve. But I also know exactly the books that you mean. I was looking, I can't remember the title of this book, but it was like, um, not going to dress up for you or uh, like girl doesn't wear high heels or some shit like that. Pink and yellow and fucking fluffy front cover. And the entire thing was about how, oh, it was like, you don't deserve this something. And it was all about how everything that you're doing at the moment in your dating life is completely fine. And that yeah. you just need to keep on plugging away with your current modus operandi until you find the man that is going to be right for you. It's this like fucking awful cocktail of molly coddling, um, victim mentality, and glitter. Yeah. Like sparkly stuff. And yeah, any young person who thinks that they're immune to this problem or that, oh, nobody would ever, you know, coddle me. Okay, ask yourself the last three times someone's broken up with you. Have you asked them why? Like, have you done a, like a, <clears throat> um, you know, a debriefing where you're like, okay, we're broken up, don't want to get back together, but please just spend half an hour giving me your honest feedback about everything I did that was stupid and annoying that I can fix that's actually under my control. Like, anybody who hasn't done that with people they've broken up with, it's because you want to be coddled. 
like you're not willing to have honest feedback. And it's, it's been great listening to, uh, you know, my wife, Diana, you know, before we got married, if she would break up with guys, she'd be like, would you like, would you like my honest feedback about what you oh, could She offered so the debrief, did she? She offered the debrief and often because she tended to date uh, like rationalists and effective altruists who would be like, yeah, actually, please do tell me, do tell me. And that's great because she leveled a lot of guys up in terms of, you know, they ended up with like much better girlfriends after that than they ever got before that. So this this kind of honest feedback can be super useful, but most people aren't willing to seek it out. Is there a uh, a reflection from this kind of molly coddling of women into you know we've just seen that there is a vast majority of women that aren't having children. You know, there's some stats around either divorces or singletonness as well, which are pretty alarming. Is there an equivalent on the male side with? incel culture, black pill, and MGTOW, whereas women are retreating into a community of women that are telling them, you will find the right man, they just don't deserve you, babe. Is the male equivalent to retreat into, you don't need a woman, we've got you, let's just go get jacked in the gym, bro? Yeah, I think there's a there's a weird kind of symmetry in, in those reactions, but I think just because there's an average sex difference in kind of how you deal with with negative information, I think a lot of the guys who are very frustrated by the mating market are kind of like, oh, all women are just superficial gold diggers. Okay, I don't match their their traits. I never can. I didn't buy Bitcoin in 2012 when it was a buck or whatever. So it's hopeless. And then you, you know, you go join a, a bunch of bitter dudes and, and hang out in their bitter cave and you just like, yeah, okay, fine. Uh, mating is optional, I guess. I had, I had five grand of Ethereum when it was $110 and sold it at 150 and thought that I'd had done yeah. the deal of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Many such cases. I mean, yeah, like the the crypto winter after what early twenty eighteen. It's like who was who was selling Bitcoin at two thousand dollars? Millions of people were. Everybody, everybody was, and um, now they're all bitter about it and sad and and. But man, those opportunities are still out there. By the way, not necessarily in Bitcoin, but in other things. This is not investment advice but by cardano uh there's a movement at the moment to ban all dating apps because they disproportionately give a very small percentage of people almost all of the success what's your thoughts on that you certainly get like that pareto principle where like okay 80 percent of mating is done by whatever 20 percent of guys or two percent of guys but that's only the short-term mating really it's not like the top 20% of guys are getting 80% of the marriages, right? So you need, the right, you need to focus on the right metric. If the metric is how many one-night stands is someone having, yeah, dating apps 
are extremely unfair and they're very much a kind of winner take all market particularly for for males but also to some degree for females um but to me that's not the relevant metric the relevant metric to me is who's who's getting together and forming long-term pair bonds and getting married and having kids and if you if you focus on that i think a lot of dating apps still have enormous potential to help people meet other like-minded people and like the weirder someone is the more unusual their beliefs uh the more useful good dating apps could be how do you mean um so like i happen to meet my wife diana um you know in professional contacts and like conferences and we work in the same field but after we started dating we thought i wonder what our match percentage is on okcupid because we each used OkCupid independently, and we're like, okay, let's compare. Like, huh. And we're a 98% match. And that was sort of like very validating. Algorithmically reaffirming. To, to us, you know. But the problem is, okay, how else would, like apart from working in the same field, how would we have found each other apart from OkCupid? If we're like Darwinian, libertarian, agnostics who are like into this and that kind of sex and have this and that weird set of alt centrist political views you can't just go to a bar or a club and expect to find someone who matches on all those things especially if you really care about those those values as we did so if you're using dating apps and you're like i just want to maximize one night stands you're probably going to be very frustrated. But if you view it as this amazing way to find your future spouse, you know, who actually matches you on stuff you care about, like, that's the thing that matters. That's, that's the story you're going to tell your grandkids in the future. What pieces of dating advice do you think that people should dispense with or do you wish that more people were focusing on when they're making their choices with mates in 2022? I think people are in, innately somewhat attracted to general intelligence, but I think a lot of men in particular underestimate just how incredibly useful general intelligence will be in a long-term mate in a woman even if the woman does not have some high-flying career, like the amount of life stress you can avoid if your spouse is really smart and decisive and well-informed and has some wisdom is enormous in terms of raising kids, where you live, you know, building a good social network, um, being f like frugal with money, making good investment decisions. Um, Handling health crises, figuring out, should we worry about that lump that we found or whatever? Like, there's dozens of domains where general intelligence really cashes out. And I would urge, like, most young men, you should, tr you should try to date smart and not just hot. Because until you've dated some really smart women, like, for a while... And given their 
intelligence, like the chance to shine, so you understand, wow, there are a lot of hidden benefits to this. Until you have that experience, you'll kind of not pay enough attention to it. I like that. What are you working on next? Have you got anything coming up? Um, I want to do some more psychology research on uh, global catastrophic risks and existential risks, because that's been one of my passions the last few years. I would really like humanity to survive in the, into the 22nd century. That would be cool. And um, there's a bunch of risks that are pretty pretty scary that uh, I think deserve a lot more attention, a lot more research. Which ones? What are you focused on? Um, I mean, a lot of these risks are well known to the rationalist community and the effective altruist community, like, you know, artificial general intelligence and superintelligence, big potential X risk, um, bioweapons and pandemics, and particularly genetically engineered bioweapons, big risk. Um, nuclear war is still a is major a, risk. Is, is nuclear war a true X risk? I think it's, it's certainly a global catastrophic risk. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about like, okay, which of these global catastrophic risks that could actually kill like all 8 billion people in a way we can never recover from? Um, nuclear war, it might leave enough um, little pockets of humanity that we could bounce back eventually, but it would still be, you know, still be a pretty bad Suboptimal. Day. Yeah. It, like, it might mean, oh, we colonize Mars in the year 2600, rather than 2050. Um, so the psychology of those is really interesting because I think we have a pretty accurate model of like what the major catastrophic risks are. But the human ability to understand those is very, very bad. Like we do not have a good intuitive grasp on any risks that affect like more people than just like me, my family, my little tribe. We never evolved the, the ability to be long-termist about like what affects all of humanity. So I would love to do more, uh, more research on that where you, you actually like use the behavioral science insights to try to guide um, public understanding of these risks and also guide policy and what we do about it. Man, there was a brief period after I read The Precipice uh, twice, back to back, um, and I was already familiar with X-Risks a lot, but that, that book just really, really drove it home. And it was, it was like a, an existential crisis from an existential risk book, where I read it yeah. and I was like, okay, you know that this is important, you believe that this is important, what the fuck are you doing with your time that isn't screaming from the high heavens to everybody that this is the single most important task for everybody to have their focus on? Like, yeah. you should stop doing podcasts about fucking sexual selection. You should <laughs> stop eating and sleeping and you should spend your time and whatever influence you have trying to get people. It, and it, as soon as I watched Don't Look Up, I just immediately resonated with the, the scientists on that, you know, as that's the job that i should be doing and there's still a part of me man there's still a fucking bit of me that goes sack it all off turn the youtube channel into an exclusively existential become like the pretty boy gateway drug to x-risk awareness 
and fucking go for that. And I, I don't know, man. That 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 entire subject area terrifies me. It's super important, and it's kind of a it's kind of a downer. But yeah, maybe you should. Maybe you should become pretty poster boy for X risk <laughs> podcast because like it it does need a lot more attention. Um, and I have exactly the same reaction. Like everybody watching this should go read Toby Ord's The Precipice. They should also read uh, Daniel Ellsberg's book, uh, The Doomsday Machine, about the risk of nuclear war throughout the 20th century. Uh, and they should watch Don't Look Up after they read The Precipice. Yes. Um, and so how do, you, how do you get excited about this and how do you find balance in life? I don't know. Like I've spent thousands of hours learning about crypto in the last 12 months. <laughs> literally thousands of hours and like i could have been running really great psychology studies about x risk and i didn't um well partly you want to get into a position where you've got the social network and the financial resources and, and the life skills and like the the professional elbow room where you can actually have an important impact yeah yeah the, the change needs to be magnified well that's the argument of the uh, effective altruism movement, right? That you, Jeffrey Miller, going and giving your time at a fucking local dog's shelter or something or flying off to Africa is not maximizing the impact that you could have because you can generate more of an impact monetarily by selling books and doing talks and things like that and then just giving it to the people that can actually go and do that. It's like the specialization for work uh, but tuned up for effective altruism. And, and you are right, there's... But dude, I, I I could absolutely see a future in which I dedicate a, a big ton of time to just trying to make that accessible. If I was to give advice to the guys that are already down that rabbit hole about existential risk, the thing that I think that they're missing is a, a bunch of ways to incentivize influencers and creators to make it sexy and to make it interesting. You know, it is a really, really important and these guys, they're fucking rationalists, right? They know where the blocks are. They should be able to see where they are. And it's the fact that, tell me who the influential existential risk YouTuber is. Who the fuck is it? It's no, it's not. There's nobody. There isn't a person that's doing it. And yet it's potentially the most important subject topic that humanity is ever going to deal with. Like that should be that should be something that people focus on. Yeah, and it it could be other things like, uh, so there's there's like a lot of money in effective altruism now. There's there's a lot more money than than talent, but there's a tendency in the rationalist community to think, well, the way you solve problems is you you write like white papers for your friends and like you do analyses and you share like the, the inner esoteric wisdom within the few thousand people in that effective altruism community and you don't really do public outreach because there's an assumption that the public couldn't handle it. Right. Or if the public got alarmed by this, they would all go stampeding off in the wrong direction. Like they might go, Oh yeah, the real X risk is like the world might get two degrees Celsius warmer yeah, and they might not care about but, AI. So, so I get that, but, this is the thing that's annoyed me the most. And ever since that table from Toby's book got put online, I post it around about every six months saying, 
uh, this is your regular reminder that climate change is not an existential risk priority. And people are concerned about the planet. It's obvious that you can weaponize um, societal concern about the future of primarily not humanity, mostly nature, but that you that there is a, a compulsion in there where people can think on that broad scale, right? It just happens to be that the first fucking movement that got a hold of that was pointing at a risk, which is like, what, one in 10,000 over the next 100 years, one in 30,000 over the next 100 years, I think Toby's got it in his book. It's, it's nothing. It's negligible. One in 10 for artificial intelligence, one in 10 for bioengineered weapons, one in 30 for maybe nanotechnology and natural pandemics. Yeah. Like, there you go. That's the fucking focus. Do you care about the dolphins? Do you care about not being turned into fucking paper clips? That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're on the same page here. And so I wish that some of that money, (laughs) that war chest to fight X risk, went a little more into social media outreach and asking, like, how could we make this like one of Jordan Peterson's top three priorities? How can we get, like, Joe Rogan's talked about this a lot with some experts. Nick Bostrom's been on. And... And like, yeah, but it's it's not like the, it's not the major focus of a lot of key public people. And it's weird because like the richest guy on the planet, Elon Musk, this is his entire fucking deal. Ever since he was a teenager, we have to go multi multi planetary to minimize existential risk, so we don't fucking go extinct. And that's his driving motivation. And yet, for all the you know, the billions of people who are kind of awestruck by SpaceX, only a tiny fraction of them even understand why Elon Musk wants to do all that. So, yeah, Elon himself should do more about this. But I th- I think he realizes, like, it's kind of a bummer and people don't want to hear it. Would you be up for coming back on and doing a primer on existential risk at some point? Like, uh, if you haven't heard about it before if you don't know about it here's what we need to know we can just thrash that out for an hour and a half or something yeah that would be awesome i'm down looks like you know i'm not an expert on like all the technical risks but i think i can provide some kind of evolutionary context of like um why long-term survival of humanity is kind of important i'm down jeffrey miller ladies and gentlemen people want to keep up to date with what you do where should they go primalpoly.com is my website um and probably the best books if you're interested in reading something i've written is uh the mating mind or spent or mate or virtue signaling amazing they'll all be linked in the show notes below jeffrey thank you for coming on man it's been a pleasure 